The incredibly complex soil community ecology is we're only really just starting to uh, appreciate and of course that is that's where most life on earth starts so we neglect it because we can't see it we abuse it as a matter of course and you know it will very likely be our downfall i think there's a recognition that business as usual has got us to where we are today which is to an, an unsustainable food system. And, and I genuinely think there is recognition that things have got to change dramatically. So this is not about business as usual. In fact, it's about actually doing business and, and agriculture differently. Welcome to the Building Better Business podcast. I'm John Steele from Cafe Direct. And today we're going to talk about agriculture. And we're going to talk about agriculture and its effect on our planet. The one thing for sure is that all of the wonderful food that we eat comes from our planet, comes from the earth. And I think sometimes we don't realize that and realize how that's being done and the implications. I can remember a number of years ago, as climate change has gained momentum, quite rightly and importantly, that people talked about aviation being a big um, impactor in terms of the amount of greenhouse gases. Yeah. And I think if you look at it, aviation accounts for less than 2% of greenhouse gases. It's still important, but less than 2% whilst agriculture accounts for nearly a quarter of the greenhouse gases that we emit. And so agriculture has to be solved in terms of its impact on carbon. I think also, and our guests will talk a bit about this, I'm sure, agriculture has changed. And to people who are fortunate enough to have a garden or, or an allotment, agriculture seems like quite a small thing, but a lot of the agriculture around the planet is actually quite industrial and uses a lot of fertilizers and is extractive rather than regenerative. So today to help us navigate this I'm really pleased to have two fantastic guests. First I'd like to introduce everybody to Guy Singh Watson and Guy is the founder of Riverford Organic which is a an organic business that is renowned for supplying fruit and veg boxes and also um, other boxes as well. So welcome Guy. Thank you. And secondly, I'd like to uh, welcome Sam Fulton. And Sam is the group director of corporate affairs from a business called Nomad Foods. And for those of you that don't know the name Nomad Foods, uh, Nomad looks after some fabulous brands, including Birdseye, Findus and Goodfellas, and is uh, one of the largest frozen food businesses around. So welcome, Sam. Thank you very much. So. Agriculture and climate change is what we're here to talk about. I thought if we could start off just to chat about the link between agriculture and climate change. I, I sort of started off with my, my crude introduction. But um, I mean, Guy, uh, could you just kind of bring to life the impact agriculture is having and, and why it's having that impact? Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about first world agriculture in developed countries, which I think is probably very different to most of the agriculture I see in developing countries so just to make that distinction yeah. Uh, but yeah talking about that first world agriculture it is you know for the most part a disaster for our soils it's a disaster for biodiversity I would say it was increasingly a social disaster in terms of the divorcing people from how and where their food is produced and it's a disaster for our health and if you're doing the whole food system in terms of what people are eating certainly in the UK 50% of it being ultra processed food we have an epidemic of type 2 diabetes coronary heart disease uh certain cancers what we call bowel cancer 
and and you know all as a result of our our food system in a very avoidable way and you know even the climate change aspects i do believe to be avoidable really about all you can say is that it's cheap you know, in the uk it amounts to eight to ten percent of gdp at farm gate prices it amounts to a measly 1.6 percent of gdp when you consider that it accounts for 50% plus of biodiversity loss, certainly more than 50%, and perhaps 25% of climate change, you know, clearly that is a, a pretty poor state of affairs. And to be designing a food system really largely based on producing ever cheaper food when at farm gate prices it's already 1.6% of GDP just seems to be completely ridiculous. Slightly take issue with some of the figures you used earlier, John, about aviation. I think it is higher than that, certainly in terms of global change. And I think one needs to be aware mm. with aviation. But you are talking about, you know, 90% of that will be the richest 10%. If everyone flew as much as the richest 10%, it wouldn't be 3%, it would be 30%. So uh, let's not underplay the impact of aviation. I mean, so you really use the word disastrous a large number of times there, Guy. And... Um... You also touched on the distinction between kind of... It threatens life on Earth. That's how disastrous it is. Yeah, exactly. There are plenty of civilizations that have collapsed as a result of poor farming practices. And, you know, we are threatened with the same. Sam, do you want to build on Guy's comments there? I mean, I, I think both of you make very well-made points. I mean, the, the, the facts are clear, completely to, to Guy's point. If you look at how agriculture, at least industrial agriculture, has developed over the last... 50 years or so, there's been huge loss of biodiversity. And in fact, I think the statistics actually show that its biodiversity loss is, is increasing faster than, than ever at any, ever, any point in our kind of lifetimes, really. And clearly that's not sustainable. I think the only positive thing I would say is I think there's much greater recognition of the fact that there needs to be a complete transformation in, in the food system. I'm not saying that everybody is definitely driving in, in the right direction, but, but, I, but I think the awareness is much greater and I, and I think there is a recognition that, that we're talking about systemic change here. This is, it's not piecemeal. It needs everybody to work together for a total transformation of, of the food industry, but not, not just for the benefit of the planet, but actually for the, the benefit of humans. We, we do need to feed more people and, and we need to find ways to do that much more sustainably. I just wanted to I said a disaster. Of course, it does produce a huge amount of food very cheaply. One shouldn't estimate, you know, the absolute phenomenal achievements of agriculture in terms of feeding a larger uh, population you know it is a great achievement i just think it could be done at a much lower environmental and social cost you touched on the difference between industrial ag agriculture and i suppose uh, smallholder agriculture or, or farming what percentage of of the agriculture is big agriculture versus small agriculture it's quite contentious actually the fao used a figure of 70 percent of food produced from smallholder agriculture which they define as being less than two hectares five acres i've always found that figure a little bit hard to believe and i think it has been contested and it seems likely that it's more likely to be in the range of 30 to 40 percent but still you know very substantial yeah, yeah no we had the same because we We'd heard the same seventy percent, and we we all our coffee comes from smallholder farmers because coffee is predominantly a smallholder farmer industry. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's more like thirty four, thirty five percent, isn't it? Or something, yeah. but still very, very significant and very uh, key. And particularly key in in where there is food insecurity and inadequate food supplies. There, it is largely being produced by smallholder the farmers. So you might say, in some ways, they're the most important, you know, third of the food system. 
So we, we work with smallholder farmers, uh, you know, growing, growing coffee at high altitude. Help us think about, though, what industrial agriculture looks like and how is big agriculture, if, if smallholder farmer agriculture is literally a family in a couple of hectares creating a small enterprise, what, what does big agriculture look like? Well, OK, I'm going to talk largely about the UK. I mean, I do also farm in France. So I have a little bit of experience of, of Europe um, and less of the US. But, but, you know, I think probably the story is the same throughout the um, developed industrialised world. It's the, uh, throughout, since we've all had our industrial revolutions, a portion of people working in agriculture has, has fallen to certainly less than 2% from probably 70% pre-industrial revolution. And that has meant and, and it now represents 1.6, 1.7% of GDP in the UK, which now means that, um, you know, perhaps a farmer has to feed 60, 70, even 100 people, if you do the you know, logical follow through of that. And, uh, you know, that can only be achieved in a, in a pretty industrialised model. And so the drive has been towards scale, towards specialist farms. So, you know, most farms in the UK are either specialist combinable crops, grain, uh, and so on, or their specialist dairy, or, you know, the most acute areas are specialist poultry and specialist pig production, um, which really has become factory farming. And dairying is going down the same route, you know, it tends to be one enterprise farms. I would say sheep and beef are the only people that have really managed to escape that. And and not only are they specialised, they are incredibly, increasingly, you know, really quite large scale. So, you know, in my parish, there used to be 10 small dairies who even... You know, even 20 years ago, we would have been milking most of them less than 100 cows. You know, that now they're two, each milking over 1,000 cows. The cows almost never go outside. You know, it's feedlot production and getting increasingly more like we have in the US. So that, that is the reality of agriculture in this country. I mean, most of the work in my sector, horticulture, is done by non-UK nationals, uh, a sort of underclass. I'm afraid. I hate to say it, but that is the reality. You don't get much English spoken on in horticultural uh, fields you do at Riverford but you don't on 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 most farms so uh, you know I think it the sort of social contribution that agriculture can make in rural areas has been lost to a large extent and I think the cultural contribution that comes from feeling a connection with where your food comes from has also been lost I mean quite a lot of that has been driven just by basic kind of economics I don't some of it I find a little bit too hard to understand just how fast the rush to scale and simplicity has uh, has taken place and then just how quickly it's changing. I think most people are probably unaware of uh, of how this is changing. But I would just ask you, as you drive through the west of Britain, the southwest, just look out the window and ask yourself, where have the cows gone? Because you don't see a lot in the fields. You know, they're all shut up on concrete, being fed, you know, soya from Brazil. And, uh, you know, it's a completely unsustainable system. I mean, it sounds like we're we're all very agreed that the way it is now is not is not going to su- be sustainable, and we're we're therefore we're we're running out of time. I mean, so it's hugely important, but it's incredibly urgent to change. And Sam, you were saying to transform the industry. Where do you start? I think just to add to what Guy said. I mean, our our brands are eaten by millions of people. So, so automatically we, we're very focused on how, how do we actually work with the farming community and work on agriculture, but actually do it sustainably at scale. I think just to give a bit of context, so about 40% of the volume of goods that we source um, in, in total are actually vegetables. So that, that equates to about 400,000 tonnes of vegetables a year. And about half of those vegetables are actually sourced directly 
from different farming communities. What, what, one example of that is, is actually the group of pea farmers that we work with in Hull in, in the UK. So some of it's actually quite regional. But for us, it's, it's very much about how can we actually look at our total supply chain and, and then apply sustainable agriculture principles to that total supply chain. So our target is 100% of our vegetables will be sourced by 2025 to sustainable agriculture standards. And then it's very much about making sure that there's a really solid framework that, that sits behind that. So our, our base level is to start with the Sustainable Agriculture Initiative's FSA farming principles. Our initial target is to make sure that all of the farmers are at minimum silver level and ideally that they're going beyond that. But, but the idea then is, is to kind of use that as, as, a, as a baseline. So we, we then build on top of that. And, and there are a couple of areas where we're particularly focused on, on top of FSA around, for example, carbon and biodiversity. But our, our focus very much is on taking 100% of our agricultural supply chains to at least FSA silver and, and beyond. Do you mind me asking what that means? I mean, are they using nitrogen fertilizer? Where is the fossil fuels coming from to make that? I wouldn't even call my own farming sustainable. I'd just like to probe into that a bit, Sam. The FSA, the, the actual framework is, is quite detailed, so that there, there's different criteria, but includes things, for example, if you look at soil health. So the top criteria is around things like soil health. It includes, for example, criteria around things like biodiversity. And we, we work with them on that. Each farmer needs to have a biodiversity strategy and plan for their farm. And, and then, as I said, like some of it is, is very much kind of, you know, there's a total farm plan, really. So it's p- part of the work of our agriculture teams, and, and I'm definitely not, especially on this call, I'm going to pretend to be a, a farming expert, but, but a lot of the work of our agriculture teams is actually to partner with, with, di- with different parts of the farming supply chain and SAI, look, look at how we can actually ensure each farm actually has a, has a plan. And, and then on top of that, there are pilot projects around things like uh, carbon, Biodiversity. Biodiversity is something, for example, that we've worked with for a, a long time. So in Germany, for example, we've worked with a group of spinach farmers and, and Bonn University on, on biodiversity projects. That includes things like flower corridors in, in the farms to kind of increase biodiversity. There are projects in the UK where we've looked at the use of cover crops in between pea crops to look at how that actually can help with things like carbon sequestration. So the SAI framework is actually really comprehensive. But then on top of that, we're looking at pilot projects to look at how we can actually take that to the, the next level. And, and a lot of those projects are where we will actually work in with additional expert partners. So we, we've had projects, for example, that we've just finished with WWF. There are a number of universities that we're working with on, on various pilots. And, and then the idea of the pilots is to take the learnings and see if we can uh, apply them at scale, either in the UK or, or actually much more broadly. Hi, John here. We followed up with Sam at Nomad Foods after the podcast to see if she wanted the opportunity to answer Guy's question on the use of nitrogen fertiliser. Nomad's agricultural team confirmed that nitrogen fertiliser is used only where applicable and against soil type, rainfall levels and crop requirement. There have been certification schemes beyond, you know, for wildlife or whatever, ever since I've pulled my first wellies on. I, I don't see them improving things very much. You know, we used to supply supermarkets and went through some of these auditing procedures I'm sure they've improved but uh, I I, you know I, I, I've just heard a load of acronyms from you that mean absolutely nothing to me uh, that may be unfair I mean I haven't done the research to find out what they do mean but in in the absence of that I, I'm afraid I will keep a degree of cynicism because I, I don't see anything like the changes you know being driven anything like fast enough by any of the schemes I've heard of and, I, and it is incredibly you know you have an uphill struggle because to quantify 
you know, validate, you know, biodiversity measurement and so on is, is extraordinarily difficult. I mean, someone has to decide the relative merit of a barn owl and an earthworm. I mean, it's a very, very difficult thing to do and subject to, yeah. you know, plenty of corruption and greenwash along the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree there, there's definitely greenwashing. I mean, the I, I think the other positive thing is there's much more transparency in terms of the expectations of how companies need to, to report. A lot of that is third party verified. A lot of it's interlinked to things like companies setting carbon reduction emission targets, you know, things like um, net zero. So, so when you look at all of these things, I think the levels of transparency are definitely growing. And, and I agree with your point on biodiversity. In fact, one of the projects that we've actually got in, in Italy with the university in Tuscany is looking at exactly that, that it's actually very difficult to measure biodiversity. So, so that's one of the projects that, that that's actually live currently is how can you actually do you, and, and, and what are the ways that you could then potentially replicate that in other countries? And one should absolutely try to measure it, but I don't think one should kid yourself or your customers that you mm. it is a, in any way a perfect measurement. And, and, there's, and there's, you know, with carbon, at least you have a unit, you know, one kilo of carbon dioxide or carbon dioxide equivalent is a recognised sort of unit. But when it comes to a farm level, you know, measuring that and measuring what's going on in the soil, uh, you know, I was two weeks ago at Groundswell, the Regenerative Agricultural Conference, and there were lots of people selling their wares with regard to measuring carbon. And we may get to a point where we can measure it credibly, but we are certainly not there yet. And the Farm Carbon Toolkit, to my mind, the most, the longest standing and most reputable and credible tool in the market they the guy who who started that whole thing says this is not an auditing tool it's a management tool to help you farm better it's not something to let allow you we are not you know the coach is getting in front of the horses in terms of you know pretending that we have any precise measurements of these things and, and you know and it sounds like we're, we're all agreeing though that we need to take action that is transformative not necessarily measuring stuff and i got the impression sam that you're you're saying so you're direct from farm goods you've got a program and you're moving towards you, you want to be silver in a thing that presumably has got gold uh, what what about the, mm. the indirect sourcing that you have how do you treat that differently because that that you're, you're slightly more distant from the farm i guess in that kind of situation yeah so i mean in terms of the farmers that, that we work with directly about 90% of them currently are at FSA silver. And, and then, as I said, the plan is to go beyond that. So that's very much a baseline to get what, what we would describe as, as kind of like the mass to a, a kind of baseline level. And then in terms of the sourcing indirect, the, the same target applies really. So overall, we're at about 88% silver. Similarly, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter to us whether it comes from direct or, or indirect. I mean, clearly we have much longer relationships in many cases with the farmers that we source with directly. So we work for pea farmers, for example, for maybe 20, 25 years in, in, in some cases, but the, the target is exactly the, the same. So we, we expect it, whether it's direct or indirect, to be, to be hitting the same level. And, and then if we feel there are gaps, then, then we partner directly with, with the different parts of the supply chain, really. Obviously, we have less control, as it were, over indirect sourcing. So, so a lot of the projects that I've talked about tend to be with our you know, the farmers that we work with directly. But the, the idea is to apply the learnings and, and the insights to, to, to the people that we source from indirectly as well. I, I think at the scale that we, we source, it's probably not possible to source all of it directly, but, but the, the actual target and the standards apply across the board. And, and, and obviously, you know, part, part of this is about relationships. There are things that we also are learning from our, 
from our suppliers, from from other companies. So uh, I, you know, I think if there's anything that, that's positive, there's much more recognition that this genuinely requires collaboration and, and sharing of information. Like no, nobody, that this is not a competitive area. Everybody wants, I think, to share things that that work really on at scale. And that's that's certainly the reason we're having these kind of uh, chats in podcasts. Is it's it's not a time for competing, is it? And going, I do this and then you do that. It's very much a time for working out how to act faster and more dramatically and to learn from each mm. other. I was going to say, Guy, I'm believing that at Riverford, it's very much a very small agriculture world. So it's a very different world. I mean, in terms of scale, well, you know, we buy probably about 30 million pounds of farm gate prices of, of produce in the UK. So, it, you know, it is, but they are largely from small and medium scale farmers. You know, we have a you know, a preference for that. I mean, when it comes to certain products, you know, potatoes and so on, that really can only sensibly done be done at scale. We are, but even then, they are family farms. So, you know, um, relatively local to us. But um, yeah, I have mixed feelings about scale. I, I don't think big necessarily has to be bad. It's just that in most cases, it turns out to be. And uh, you know, I think one might probe into why that is, but I, I don't think it necessarily has to be. Uh, and we we do do some auditing with our suppliers, and we are tentatively entering into environmental, you know, auditing, uh, working with the, the uh, scheme through the Soil Association, and also using the Farm Carbon Toolkit. But I am very reluctant to, you know, tell our farmers at this stage, you know, what they have to do, uh, because I don't I don't feel I would know well enough myself actually, and um, and I suppose we um, our approach is kind of more one of hearts and minds, I guess, is that, you know, we tend to work with farmers who share our worldview and, and part of that is definitely looking after the environment. And uh, it may sound a bit prejudicial that if we don't like them, we don't buy from them on the whole, or we, that we won't buy, we will look to find someone else if we don't believe that they're hard. I went to a Spanish property producer a couple of months ago. I was with him two hours and he didn't mention the soil once. We will not be buying broccoli from him next year. You know, he clearly is, he didn't, I don't think he gave a damn about anything other than making money. And those are not the people that we want to be dealing with. So, you know, we will then, and we encourage them. We have a certain amount of sort of training and we have forums where they will discuss their environmental measures. And and that's, and then we do, we do actually pay for some things on their farms. For instance, an an agroforestry scheme we've been financing for the last year. But we're not, you know, we're not being prescriptive in terms of telling our farmers what they should be doing. Not at the moment, anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I just suffered too much of that from supermarkets 20 or 30 years ago when I used to supply them, and I really don't want to fall into the same trap of having some idiot coming around who doesn't know anything about my farm and telling me how to farm. It made me think that I should probably say a little bit about some of the things that Cafe Direct does, even though we're... I'm usually trying to get you guys to talk rather than me. But... um. I mean, I suppose some of the things that we, we do thinking about the discussion, and uh, we, we do have uh, what we call centres of excellence in kind of four farms in Peru and then four in East Africa where you, you, you're trying to achieve a certain uh, change and then you have an exemplar farm and then all the other farmers come and see it and learn from it and chat about it and, and stuff like that. So an example would be um, there's a farm just over the Andes where leadership is very much about women and it's very much about diversifying income. So, you know, they they add value to 
things that they sell in local markets, like, like creating chocolate and selling guinea pigs because it's a you know source of protein and it's accept, accepted more in Peru than it is in Putney or whatever. So um, you know, so although their their main crop is coffee, if you go to the farm there, you know they're growing fish, they're growing guinea pigs, they are. Uh, growing vegetables they've got the shade point that you're making there sam in terms of helping to change the the way that soil is being treated i guess it we we find those are quite a good way because then you're not you're not telling some you're not telling a farmer how to do business farmers are learning together i guess um and there's there's other ones i mean some of it's social because it's about the, the the role of women and the role of young people but then there are climate change ones and kind of quality and yield stuff as well but um i think it you, you made me feel when you mentioned it, Sam, it is important to find ways of transforming as well, isn't it, on the on the ground? As a basest, I don't th- I don't think there's any company, def- definitely not um, Nomad Foods or any of the brands. N- n- none of us want to have an unsustainable system. U- ultimately, th- these are brands that people know and trust. We want them to be around for the next hundred years. As, 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 so it's in our best interest to really make sure that we do everything possible that that we can actually ensure that that, that we do have a sustainable supply chain for the. The, the future, but but completely, you know, I, I think there's there's huge recognition of the challenges facing farming communities. You know, if, if you look currently, we're in a cost of living crisis. It, you know, that the whole Russia Ukraine issue has made things, you know, on, on a whole other level of volatility, really. So I actually agree with you know with, with Guy when he he talks about that. You know, this is not about auditing. The, the reason we've got agricultural teams is because they it's about relationship building. So it's about making sure that we can actually work with the the farmers and understand what their issues are. And look like where we can actually be part of the the solution. De- definitely, I think not telling them how to how to do things, but then very much kind of sharing those learnings because we do operate at uh, operate at scale. But some some of it is around diversification, really, in terms of business models. I, I think we have to be honest about green. It, it, it's cheaper to make a claim than it is to actually do the deed and be green. I.e., greenwashes can be the cheapest way of maintaining, you know, if we're going to say trust, faith in your brand, you know, rather than actually financing the activity, you know, to produce food well with care for the environment and for future generations costs more. Can't get away from that. It is, you know, you cannot produce food sustainably at 1.6% of GDP. It is just not possible. And to look after livestock uh, properly and, you know, really to have care for future generations. I, I just think we have to be honest about it. You can't do it. You know, I am sceptical about claims about sustainability but that are fundamentally carrying on with a business-as-usual model of, of food and farming. This is genuinely not business-as-usual. I think, I think there's a recognition that business-as-usual has got us to where we are today, which is to an, an unsustainable food system. And, and I genuinely think there is recognition that, that things have got to change dramatically. So, so, so this is not about business-as-usual. In fact, it's about... Uh, actually doing business and, and agriculture differently. Business as usual, what do you think, when you're sitting around a boardroom table, what is the outlook in terms of, you know, how many years, I mean, return on investments, what are people might talking about? I mean, if you get to five, you've done damn well. My experience of sitting around a boardroom table and three is more common. These are, these are questions that are in longer term than that. And they're the basic, you know, model that most, you know, global organisations, most capital institutions are all about shareholder value. And that, you know, that, that's the rule of the game. Let's be honest about it. That's how capitalism works. And it delivers many wonderful things through that system, but it is gonna take us to, you know, over the cliff 
in, unless we, you know, we are honest. And one of the main problems is the time frames. We are talking, you know, planting a tree. I've just been planting walnut trees. Then, you know, they may produce some walnuts in 10 years' time. Uh, you know, it's going to take them 50 years to get into main production, and their impact on the soil and soil carbon will be measured in, you know, decades, if not centuries. These are not the sort of time frames that people are sitting around boardroom tables discussing. And even worse, they're not the sort of time frames that people are sitting around cabinet tables discussing. But generally, the electoral cycle, you know, five years, is is just too short. So we have a combination of a political system and an economic capitalist system, which is just patently ill-suited to deal with the problems in front of us. And I, I just think we'd do much better to be honest about that. I can't really comment on any other co- company. I, I think for, for us, really, some of the thinking is very long-term. I mean, if, if you take the bird's IP supply chain, this is a supply chain that's been running since the 1950s. The focus very much is on how, how do we actually make sure that that can continue for years to come. In terms of other sources, I mean, you know, one of our other big portfolios is fish. But fish, again, is very long-term. I mean, you know, the reality is it takes a fish a certain time to grow. You shouldn't be selling fish. If you really care about the health of the oceans, you should not buy anything that comes off a beam trawler, and I'm damn sure that you do. You just should You cannot sell yourself a sustainable company while you're selling that stuff. It is not sustainable. There are a whole different level of certifications for, for fish, but, but, but I, I think as an example, it's, it's genuinely thinking about, you know, wh- whether that's fish stocks or, or vegetables or, or whatever, you've, you've got to think big picture. The point you're making, Guy, is the point that I guess we spend quite a lot of our time about, which is if, if organisations are owned uh, to deliver profit to pay shareholders, that creates short-termism and it creates a focus that's about money, not about changing the system. It's Yes, it does. And I I, I'm guess, I don't know, Sam, but I'm guessing that um, Nomad Foods isn't a listed company, that it's perhaps owned by long-term, maybe family shareholders. Um, is that the case? So we are actually li- listed. Yeah. yeah, we're listed, yeah. You are, right. Well, I mean, it's hell if you're listed and people are analysing your results and looking to the next quarter and your predictions. I mean, that's the reality of the game. And if you don't meet the, you know, as the CEO, if you don't meet the targets, the expectation of your investors, you're out the door. I mean, it's very hard. You know, let's be honest. It is very hard under that structure. I know some family-owned companies, particularly on the continent, have a you know much longer-term view and they're able to. They're afforded that luxury by not being beholden to... You know, shareholders who think about anything other than, you know, the bottom line. I I just think we need to be honest because we're not going to solve these problems, you know, whilst we sort of pretend that these two, these systems and sustainability long term, you know, are are compatible. They're just not. I think you, the point you made, though, I mean, our, our view very much is that business can play a role, but, but, but genuinely it requires collaboration across the whole value chain. So there's a role for government. Part of the challenge is government is also quite sometimes short term. It requires expert partners because we recognise there are areas that we're, we're definitely not expert in. So therefore, we, we need to make sure that we're actually getting that input and expertise. But I, I think the reality is probably a recognition that everything is so interconnected that, that actually I don't think there are really any supply chains where a business or one organisation can drive the level of transformation that's required. It, it, it's genuinely looking at what's the system change and how can, we, how can we create the right environment and bring the right people on board to do that? Which is kind of what I'm driving at. The, I think it's very difficult, you know, accepting that we live in a capitalist world. It's very difficult for businesses like ours or, or you know, or Sam's to find the solutions without a, a government that has the courage to set 
a framework, you know, a, a legislative framework. And yeah, I mean, to my mind, I mean, you know, at least half of these problems would just go away, would be solved within a decade if we had a realistic carbon tax or, or, or even better, a fossil fuel tax. And, and if so, the funds from that were redistributed per capita so to make sure that you know, poorer people didn't suffer. In fact, they would be substantially better off. And, and studies by the IMF and the OECD both confirm, with slightly different time frames, that this would drastically reduce our carbon emissions globally. You know, in the, the order of, uh, I think it was 30% in three years, one of them, globally. I mean, it, it, it's so obviously the answer. And I, that's why I'm asking for honesty. We live in a capitalist world where, you know, large corporations that to a large extent share that, uh, shape that world, you know, exist to make profits. It's government's job to shape that world so that those businesses can do what they do best, you know, attribute resources, uh, you know, to deliver those profits. And if you put the right framework in place, and the most important part would be taxing carbon, the problem would go away. And it, I just find it infuriating that you know, the power of the fossil fuel lobby, let's just have some honesty, this is just in no way a fit response for the situation that we're in. You know, let's hold our our politicians to account. And if we don't, if we continue to elect, you know, a bunch of lying charlatans, then, you know, we, we have only ourselves to blame. Shall we bring us back down to back down to earth a little bit and talk about soil? How about that? I mean, we, you talked about soil a bit earlier on, Guy, and what exactly is it that's going on with soil in big, big agriculture? How bad is it changing? And how do we stop it? Well, ever since we cut down the forests and started ploughing the ground, we've pretty much been losing carbon. I mean, I'm guessing that probably started somewhere around 10%. Probably, And you'll find most arable soils are down 1% to 3% now, I suppose. So we've lost a huge amount of carbon. A lot of that's gone up in the atmosphere, but almost all of it. And I think I'm right in saying prior to 1970, globally, there was more carbon dioxide emitted as a result of anthropogenic you know, mankind's activities uh, through changing land use, so clearing forests and so on in agriculture, than, than through um, burning fossil fuels. So it has been huge, um, you know, fossil fuels has since overtaken it, obviously. So, uh, yeah, so loss of carbon being a, a large part and, and loss of physical structure, because it is the organic matter in the soil that binds the soil particles together and gives it a sort of stability and a resistance to compaction keeps the structure open and allows water to percolate, which, you know, the less of that, you, you know, you get more runoff, more flooding. And then the microbial life in the soil, you know, the incredibly complex mycorrhizal fungi, the bacteria, the invertebrates, the earthworms, you know, which I think we're only really, okay, Darwin wrote about earthworms, but, you know, the, the, the incredibly complex uh, soil community ecology is we're only really just starting to uh, appreciate and of course that is that's where most life on earth starts you know and if you don't have that you don't have voles if you don't have voles you don't have barn owls kestrels buzzards and so on and, and it so we neglect it because we can't see it we abuse it as a matter of course um and um you know it will you know you know very likely be our downfall and it is it's a sort of buffer, I suppose. It's a buffer in terms of carbon. It's a buffer in terms of water. I mean, the better, the healthier your soil, the more ability it has to hold moisture so you can better withstand droughts. You'll have less flooding downstream. And, you know, the much quoted, you know, we only have 60 harvests left or something. I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about those figures because it's a gross oversimplification. 
I'm sure there are places in the world where it's probably less than 60 harvests. I'm pretty sure it's not on my farm. So it is a, but yeah, you know, we are in, in dire straits. And I think there is, I mean, globally, but in the developed world, you know, wheat yields have more or less plateaued. So however much clever breeding we do, we're not getting any more out of the soil because we have abused our soils to an extent where it can't produce anymore. And I think there is a growing acknowledgement of that, I mean, you know, way beyond the organic farming community, I think in the conventional farms as well. And that is driving some improvements in farm practices. I mean, the move towards mintil, you know, minimal cultivations, less plowing and so on is, you know, definitely a great thing. It can come at the cost of an increased agrochemical usage, in particular the herbicide glyphosate, which I, so I think needs to be viewed with a degree of caution. But on the whole, you know, I think yeah, there is. There are encouraging signs, and you know, I'm guessing that these are the sort of things that Sam's um, suppliers will be doing. Yeah, because Sam, you touched on soil health being there on your on your agenda. There are things we're doing as Nomad Foods, and and another others where we're partnering in terms of some of the I suppose the resources that we've got. So we've got a global research center in Sweden. One of the things that they're looking at all the time is is basically soil. So some of that is looking at soil from different countries, see what some of the learnings are. Again, see how we can maybe share that with some of the the, the kind of farming groups that, that we work with. There are the projects that I've talked about. So a couple in the UK, what one of them called Project Echo. There's basically 600 um, hectares under that, that we're, we're kind of working with farmers, which, which use cover crops to really look at the impact on soil and stuff like carbon sequestration. There's another project where our agriculture teams are doing stuff like taking headlands out of production to, to really look at different pollinators and, and, and again, look at the, the impact. And, and then I think there's some quite interesting stuff, again, very UK specific, but through the Sustainable Soils Alliance, there's now actually a, a new industry platform that's looking at soil health. So, so I, I think that's, that's a good example of A, there's recognition that this is an area where there needs to be more work and more collaboration, but, but, but also where that there's very active alliances developing really to see how we can kind of like scale up some of that, some of the learnings really, making sure that we are looking at how we can continuously improve really. Because I mean, Guy, when you were talking about you know, the way the way soil is being degraded, it clearly then has an economic, a negative economic impact on businesses, doesn't it? Because if you can't get the yields, presumably, then you you're you're in to, to these the businesses that are about profit. You're in you're into difficulty, aren't you? Eventually, yes. But you know, even over quite long time frames, we have been abusing our soils for a long, long time and have kind of got away with it by virtue of you know keeping the crops healthy by putting on more ammonium nitrate fertilizers, more fungicides and more insecticides. You know, we managed to get away with it. I think there is an acknowledgement that we are approaching uh, the end of the road. So unfortunately, in the sort of time frames that, you know, many people, you know, farmers probably have a, well, historically have thought in longer time frames, but I'm afraid, particularly with arable farmers, that's, you know, maybe they've, you know, commercial pressures have pushed those long-term you know, considerations off the table. You know, we are, you know, I still maintain that even farmers aren't thinking long, long term enough. So I think the, the commercial imperative is not really strong enough. Uh, when I went to Groundswell, as I mentioned earlier, Festival of Regenerative Farming, and I asked every farmer I met there when I was queuing for the lose, the bar of food or whatever, why are you here? And they, all of them said, we're here because we want to farm better. We want to be farm part of the solution, not part of the problem. That's why they were there. And then, you know, then that would be closely followed up by, of course, we have to make it pay. But the actual primary driver was wanting to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I think a lot of farmers, 
I wouldn't go as far as to say most, but I think a lot of farmers and a growing number are thinking like that. And I, I don't think, yes, it does have to pay, but I don't think we should be too kind of bashful or shy about appealing to people's better instincts. I think most people do want to do the right thing. And, you know, and I think being honest about what the right thing is, uh, you know, it is is important. And uh, there are a lot of things which people just refuse to talk about. I mean, dragging a beam trawler across the bottom of the ocean is in no way acceptable. And, and no thinking person should be eating or selling fish caught in that way. And that is the way 70% of fish that are landed in the UK are caught. Uh, you know, it, it, there's certain things and certain you know, use of neonicotinoids. I would be interested to hear, Sam, if any of you, your farmers are using neonicotinoids. You talk about, you know, uh, preserving headlands to, to maintain pollinators. But if your farmers are using neonicotinoids, you know, it's really, it's, it's tokenism. I mean, no, neonicotinoids are almost certainly the result, the cause of, um, or a substantial cause of the collapse in pollinator numbers. And they just shouldn't be being used. And they have largely been banned in Europe, but our government has decided to, since we left, to allow farmers to use them again on, in many instances. To be honest on that, that's something that I would need to check with our, our agri teams. Here, obviously, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that they're looking at day to day. John here again. We managed to catch up with Sam from Nomads Foods on Guy's question on neon nicotinoids after the podcast recording and gave the following statement. The use of crop protection products by growers in the production of vegetables for nomad foods follow integrated pest management protocols with cultural controls, which are non-chemical, prioritised first and any interventions balanced against wider commitments on sustainable agriculture, which includes supporting biodiversity and reducing biodiversity loss. The other thing that um, wasn't on the agenda but was touched on in the, in the discussion, which is a good lively discussion, is... Cheap food. And I mean, if, if I was to worry about anything, you know, we are clearly going into a period of incredible inflation and probably consumers looking for cheap food um, when we're trying to not have that situation. I mean, does how do you feel about the current um, situation, Guy, in terms of the way consumers are starting to feel and that, you know, that, that whether that will set us back or not? Um. I feel quite angry about how the, the argument is framed. I mean, we have a problem in this country with people not being able to afford food. I'm sorry, I don't think that means that food is too expensive. You know, we have a problem of poverty in this country, which is a result of the, the unequal distribution of wealth. You know, I would say expecting, you know, even on minimum wage, whatever it is, £9.40 or something an hour, you cannot live on £9.40 an hour, even if you both work and you have two children you cannot live on that money. It's, I would go as far as to call it modern day slavery. Yet we have a government expecting people who are earning that sort of money, working in the NHS, working in the care sector, sometimes working in farming, and they're being asked to exercise pay restraint. I mean, come on. I mean, we have a problem of poverty in this country. We do not have a problem of, well, it, it results in food poverty, but the fundamental problem is poverty. No one's talking about you know, it's like we're back in the Victorian times where people spent 70% of their disposable income on food. People spend 8% now. You know, they spend probably poor people, I'm guessing, 40, 50% on rent. Where's the discussion about property prices and rent? Why are we talking about food? You know, and, and anyway, even if you want cheap food, as I said earlier, only 1.6% of 
Um, GDP goes back to farmers. People spend maybe 8%. So, you know, a fifth, a sixth goes back to the farmer. Don't talk about how we're farming. You know, talk about what's going on in the food chain if you want cheap food. I mean, talk about, you know, how retailing works and so on. Uh, So because we have a poverty crisis in this country, the implication that somehow farmers have to abandon all environmental measures and just focus on cheap food is ridiculous. Yeah, that's that's not where the, the issue is at all, is it? No. Yeah, I think I, I was with Oxfam where they showed the distribution of value over 30 years between retailers, manufacturers, traders and um, farmers. And yeah, I mean, it, it's not only too small an amount going to the farm, but it's a declining amount over time. So it's not even um, that it's sustain in unsustainable and at a point in time it's get, it's been getting worse and worse and worse guy you talked about legislation earlier and i suppose in, you know one of the closing things here really is what are the two or three big things that need to be done to really you know change the system rapidly and dra- and drastically what do we need to do well i've mentioned that the, the game changer for me is a carbon or a fossil fuel tax i mean that yeah. trumps everything else by a long long way and beyond that i would say you know, just ban neonicotinoids, farmers will adjust, you know, so I, I let's do the simple things that are clearly wrong, but shouldn't be happening. I'd be looking, really looking to reduce the amount of, and even remove the amount of um, soya and grain fed to ruminant animals. I think that's a madness. I think I would make heating greenhouses illegal, or at least make sure the fossil fuel is taxed appropriately to its environmental damage, which would have the same effect anyway. I, th- I just think we've got to look at legislation that is actually enforceable, that can work. I mean, I really hope that the ELM scheme, you know, can be made workable. I, I do worry, having sat around a table with the you know, two people who work for Riverford and looking into all the schemes. I mean, my God, it is complicated. The, the old idea of, you know, public money for public goods is great in principle, but the practical reality of, you know, of measuring those public goods and appropriating uh, Distributing public money appropriately to the value is 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 far more difficult than Michael Gove or you know any of his successors I think acknowledges. So I, I, I yeah a legislative framework I've mentioned a, a few things which would be top of the list. You know they may manage it with Elms, but some relatively simple uh, quantifiable uh, grant payments for things like you know planting tree you know single trees you know in where I farm. Uh, you know, the mature trees, the oaks, uh, the elms have all gone, the ash are now going, you know, that stand, the standard trees in, in, in pastures are an incredibly important part of our visual amenity, but also carbon sequestration and animal welfare. So I think simple payments for things like that and hedge maintenance are a great, I'm, I mean, perhaps, I mean, I, carbon trading, I'm not an enthusiast, but it is coming. Well, it's already happening and in a very, very dodgy way. And I think it is happening. And I think we have to have a government framework to regulate it. So I would say a regulatory framework for that would be pretty high up the list as well. There are a few things. That's great. So, and Sam, what about yourself thinking you know, beyond Nomad Foods about the things that need to really change? I mean, I, I would agree. I, I mean, I, I think as a baseline, uh, support of legislative environment would be helpful. I think on the positive side, the, the fact that there is now much more scrutiny and, and transparency of the various claims being made, I, I actually think there's a direction where, you know, just because of the level of reporting from businesses that that actually will drive scale on its own. And, and then I think, you know, not, not just Nomad, but I think everybody, there there are some strong targets 
but the what's more important is actually the action plans that sit behind them. So so we need to make sure that the that we drive the action, not just uh, make make the commitment really, which sounds very broad. But but I, th I think that is the key thing is to keep focused on actually driving the change. A time when actually it is very challenging, but we, but we need to keep continuing to do that at the same time as we you know, deal with all the, you know, the volatility and, and all the other things that are happening and, and, and make sure we keep focused on, you know, ensuring that it's actually affordable and accessible for consumers. It's the actions that count. And I, I, I am yeah. just not interested in reading another government white paper with targets on it, which are just ignored. I mean, there's just been one after another after another. I, I'm not, it's the actions. It's the solid enforceable legislation. Uh, that I'm interested in, and it does have to be enforceable. I mean, it, the, we have a government that can't, you know, is a, has this antipathy to being called nanny state in any way, whatever. But you know, if you have laws, you have to be willing to enforce them. And and you know, at the moment, no one has the resources to do that. Whether it's, you know, trading standards, you know, the you know, we have some very very bad labelling and just outright lying. That no one, there's just no resources to do anything about it. If you want the free market to find the solutions and I've already said that I don't think it will find the solutions but you have you you know to have any chance whatsoever you have to have enforceable rules which we just don't have at the moment thanks to our guests today for a great conversation and thanks to you our listeners for joining us there were a few bits of terminology there so if you'd like to find out more and delve further into some of the topics head to the cafe direct website where you'll find this episode and please make sure you rate and subscribe on the listening platform you use, as it really does help us to spread the word about the podcast. <laughs>